Well, now we're going to turn to God's word and we're going to be in two passages uh, this morning. Again, both very short and very brief. Um, Isaiah chapter six, verses two and three and Habakkuk chapter two, uh, verse 20. And these are going to speak to these are scriptures that speak very much to the things we're going to be uh, talking about this morning. And uh, my wife is going to read, but she is downstairs with the, with the kids. And so which I'm happy about. And it's wonderful. Um, so I'm just going to read it for us this morning. OK. This is the word of God, Isaiah six, two and three, and then Habakkuk two twenty. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Of course, these seraphim are in the throne room of God. Isaiah is having a majestic vision. And here we see there are these heavenly beings worshiping God before his throne. Then Habakkuk. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Amen. And now we're going to pause and I'm going to invite Felicia to cue up the song. And for this song, this is a, you'll notice, maybe some of you are familiar with it. Um, it's more somber in tone. Uh, it's a more serious type of hymn because its focus is different than some of the other hymns we've looked at. And uh, so I, I just invite you to listen to the words here and kind of ponder along with the song. I mean, if you know it and want to sing, that's great. Um, but you can remain seated. This is a song for us to kind of just chew on as we as we listen. So go ahead, please.
It's a beautiful hymn. Surprisingly, it's a Christmas hymn. Well, this week we will be continuing our series looking at Christmas hymns. As I've said in previous weeks, I think this probably goes without saying, but good to reiterate, these hymns are not Holy Scripture, right? We're not setting these hymns up on a par with the Word of God. Instead, what we're doing is taking some of the best hymns and seeing them like windows. Windows that help us see something that we deeply love. They give us a view of something precious and important to us. Now, each of the hymns we've looked at is showing us something a bit different about the coming of Jesus. So I've tried to select ones that are very appropriate for the season of Advent and may help us prepare for Christmas as we think about the coming of Jesus. Now, the first week, we took at, I took a look at um, which hymn? Who can remember what we looked at the first week? O Come, O Come, right? Emmanuel. That hymn focused on the longing after the coming of, of Jesus. It remembered a time when Jesus was yet to come, but it also looked forward to the day when Jesus would come again. Now, last week, we looked at arguably what was, we talked about a little bit about this last week, what is probably the most popular Christmas hymn of the last hundred years or so. Anyone remember which one we looked at last week? Joy to the world. Good job. Isaac Watts' very well-known Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. That great hymn focused on the joy of Jesus' coming. All the creation singing and praising God was uh, something he wrote while meditating on Psalm 98. All of creation is praising God as it receives her king and looks to him to undo the curse from the fall. This week we will look at what is probably a a less well-known, a less known hymn, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you had heard this hymn, sung this hymn before? Okay, it looks like maybe half the room, roughly, something like that. Okay. So not totally unfamiliar, but maybe, maybe not um, a more popular hymn. Maybe not. This hymn, just to give you a little background, and then we'll get into some of what I think we need to take away from, from this today. 
This hymn is said to come out of what is called the Liturgy of St. James. Now, liturgy just speaks of um, kind of order of worship, right? Every church has a liturgy of one kind or another. Uh, some are more invo- involved and structured. Others are more free. But, but all gatherings of the church across the centuries have had some kind of liturgy. And some of these liturgies are very, very ancient. They're words, practices, songs, chants that are recited on and on and on. Pretty much every time some, certain groups get together, they say these things. And some go back quite, quite far. This hymn is said to come out of what is called the Liturgy of St. James, which is a form of Christian worship that is found in many churches in the East, especially Eastern Orthodox churches. These worship forms are believed to go back to James the Just, who was the half-brother of the Lord, and believed to be the early leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, there's multiple Jameses in the Scriptures, and we won't talk about all the different different ones, or because there's, there's some debate about who's who and all that sort of thing. But Felicia, if you'll pull up that image I've got here, this is a, an icon, an image drawn um, of James the Just, the half-brother of, of Jesus. And, and it is believed that uh, the words out of that song we just sung, at least I think they are originally written in Greek, um, may go back to uh, James, the half-brother of, of the Lord. Now, if you were to open your hymnal and turn to hymn number 114, if you want, you can flip there really quickly. And you can have it there. I think the lyrics of of the hymn are also in the bulletin. Um, But if you look in there, you'll see just a little interesting tidbit to show you. Anytime we're singing a hymn, you can do this. You'll notice in the bottom left-hand corner, it'll tell you who the words go back to. And then the music. And sometimes I think it's maybe even unknown or it's developed over time. But in this case, what's it say right there? Liturgy of St. James, 5th century, right? And the adapta- it's adapted or translated by this uh, Moultrie guy in the 1900 or 1800s. But you can look there and see, and you can do that with any hymn. So we're talking about a form of worship. We're using words here that go back at least 15 or 1,600 years. That's very significant. And I hope that's powerful to you folks. I mean, many of you folks that have lived in this area for most of your life, you're, you're folks that value tradition. You value history. You won't tear down a building, ever. You'll renovate it. You might put some new beams, but you won't tear it down, right? Because it's a part of history. So, and that's okay. But we're looking at something here that's ancient, guys, and we're singing it and learning from it. So today this hymn is sung regularly again in Eastern churches, especially during the celebration of Holy Communion, which is appropriate. Not only does it speak of Christ giving his body and his blood as food. You may have noticed that in the song. Uh, For all believers, its tone is weighty and it communicates gravitas it's significant it's it's we're, we're talking about deep things here and that comes through even in the tone of the hymn this hymn stands in contrast to the joy and exuberance again of joy to the world from last week right so we're trying to try to mix it up with the different things we're seeing here in the way these hymns sound this hymn has more of a serious and sober feel to it it's a solemn hymn 
And it's wrestling with the significance of the fact that the Lord God Almighty has come down and stepped upon the earth. It's pondering the one whom angelic beings worship has come down and is among us. This hymn is what we might call starstruck with Christ. You ever heard that term before, starstruck, right? This idea of seeing a famous celebrity or someone maybe you re- really revere and they walk in the room and you're like, you know, speechless of how am I supposed to act around this person, that sort of thing. Probably too much of that in the world. Um, but there is a good place for being starstruck. And this is one, thinking about God has come down and we're in awe. We should be, right? Again, in contrast to Watts's hymn, Joy to the World, which puts forward joy as one of the primary responses to the coming of the Lord. This incredible hymn is going to say that we should respond with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Again, think of these hymns as windows. So I don't want you to be confused, right? I don't want to come across, well, one week he's telling us we should have sorrow and joy and, and, and longing and yearning, and then the next week he's saying we should have joy, and then the next week he's saying fear and trembling. Which is it? You know, well, how do we respond? That's right. All of the above. Yes, correct. Different windows. Think of these as different windows in the same house on the same piece of land. Different windows giving you different views of the same piece of property. One view may show you one side of the property where you have a, you know, maybe in the distance there, a peaceful stream that that, that runs behind the house, giving you a sense of peace and tranquility. Right. A second window in the house may give you a vision of an Maybe an old tire swing or something where where a loved one who is no longer alive used to push you on the swing, giving you a feeling of longing or sorrow. You have memories there. You look back and you think, I love those days, but they're gone. You know, those feelings, that's different. Yet still another view shows you a majestic mountain towering above the landscape, prompting a sense of awe and wonder. Power, right? All of these can be seen from different windows. These hymns are each looking at the same landscape, maybe from a different angle. And here this hymn is going to give us a glimpse of the birth of Christ that prompts fear and trembling. Perhaps we would say this is the window looking out at the towering mountain, right? Now, this is probably not what most of us feel or think when we ponder the birth of Christ, if we're being honest with each other. A baby's being born. This is a happy time. Why would we feel fear and trembling at the birth of a child? Why? Why this response to the coming of Jesus into the world? Well, because this hymn is going to show us this is no ordinary baby, right? This is no ordinary Every child, of course, is precious, but this one is unique in so many ways. We're going to see several things about this baby that should cause us to fear and tremble and to stand silent at the thought. And the first one is this. First one is this. We see many things we could go on for quite some time, but I'm trying to focus on some of the things the hymn um, points out here. And the first one is this, that this baby has come to make demands he has come to make demands this is a demanding baby (laughs) 
Now, some of us, that's what I was going to say. Some of us are like, all babies are demanding. They all require tremendous amounts of attention, right? And care demand our attention. We're going to see this baby is making demands in a different sort of way. This is the chosen word in our hymn today, there in the first stanza or verse. Some versions have the word command. That might be what's in our hymnal, I'm not sure. But the song that we listened to, I think, said demand. But the meaning is similar, right? What is meant is that this child has great authority. This is a child who is of authority. This person who has come in our time and space has the right to make commands and demands. He is greater than us and can command and demand things from us. Of course, we know from the records we have in the Bible that this is, in fact, what Jesus would do when he would grow up. We see him teaching this way and assuming this authority as he grows in wisdom and stature throughout his life. Over and over again, it is said of him, he teaches as one with authority. That's right. In other words, the way he taught was not with reference to some other outside authority. Right? If we want to say something, we might point to something outside of ourselves. We might point to the Bible or the law or something outside of ourselves as a kind of authority. Because this person or that thing says this, you must do that. Jesus would say, I say to you, I say to you as one with authority, right? He assumed his words carried the requirement of obedience. I say to you. His final word that he left with his disciples was this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said, this stuff I taught you just wasn't for fun. This wasn't, I wasn't a philosopher just kind of wrestling with interesting thoughts or concepts. No, you must obey this and teach others to do the same. This child would grow up to be a man who would say things like that. He would say, go and teach others. To do these things. Follow these demands. These are requirements. Not suggestions. This baby was coming to command us. To lead us. And rule over us. When we think of Jesus coming into the world. It is rare to hear people say. That he's come to rule us. Or to command us. Or be our ruler. Right? That's a rare way. We don't talk like that. Do we? Definitely not here as Americans. Because Americans. We're all about. I'm going to do it my way, right? My autonomous self. But this is one of the things scriptures, the scripture tells us about the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 9, which is a well-known messianic text, which we often read uh, during this time of year. And we've even read it in some of the Advent candle readings. And we'll hear it again on Christmas Eve together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, you probably repeat the rest, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His government will never end. You hear that? 
And it says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this, this time forth and forevermore. He will rule. His government will increase. His rule will increase and increase and increase. It will never end. Do you hear those words? Let that sink in. This is no ordinary child. This child that is coming to us is a kingly figure like David. One who has a throne and rules with absolute power. And his kingdom will grow and grow and grow and he shall reign forever and ever. You can hear the hallelujah chorus, can't you? And he shall forever and Amen. He has come to make demands and his demand and he demands the, that, that first verse says what he demands is our full homage right there in the first verse of that hymn, our full devotion, our full commitment. This, again, is no ordinary baby. That should give us pause when we think about that, right? Maybe create within us a sense of trembling and fear at what this means absolute power and rule over our lives. Another thing that um, should provoke fear and trembling as we ponder this child and look at this, this hymn that's speaking to these things is that this baby has come to defeat the powers of hell. Come to defeat the powers of hell. Excuse me. In sports, it's common to measure the strength of, of a team or a competitor, um, oftentimes by how they match up against others, right? By the other teams they've defeated or they've been defeated by. This is a way of kind of measuring the strength of a team or a, or a player. For example, a team could be undefeated, but if they've played only weak competition, they may still not be better than a team that lost half of their games against really tough opponents, Right? Kind of talked about this last week or the week before about what is good, right? Depends on your measuring rod. <clears throat> well, here we are presented with a child that is so powerful that he comes to vanquish the very powers of hell and drive the darkness away, the writer says. And there is no greater opponent, no greater evil, no greater opposition on earth than Satan. You cannot defeat him. I cannot defeat him. An entire army of armed men cannot bring down the great dragon, Satan. Apart from the help of God, you and I cannot even overcome the smallest of temptations in our own lives, let alone actually defeat the great tempter. But here, this child born of Mary as it says in our hymn, will vanquish the powers of hell. As the scriptures say out of 1 John chapter 3, Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. This is no ordinary child. No ordinary child. Should prompt us to fear and tremble at the awesome power of this person. A third thing this hymn is going to point out to us about this child that should provoke us to fear and trembling is that this baby, this person is worshipped by cherubim and seraphim. 
cherubim and seraphim are heavenly angelic beings that are talked about here and there throughout the word of God. And some of you have been here for our study on Ezekiel that I do hope to resume again at some point. In that study, we've talked a little about cherubim. If you were to go back and look again at those early visions of Ezekiel, you'll remember these heavenly creatures that were moving the throne of God around in that vision. Those are cherubim. Seraphim are the six-winged creatures mentioned in the passage that I read a few moments ago out of Isaiah 6 that are continually calling to one another and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. They just continually say this before the throne. These are mysterious, wondrous creatures. We look at them with, in a way, confusion. What's going on here? But it's awesome and, and great. No doubt if we were confronted by one of these creatures, what would be our response? Great fear, or perhaps maybe we would even be tempted to worship. In Revelation 22, when an angel comes and speaks to the Apostle John, he bows down to worship and then gets a rebuke. No, I worship him. He alone is worthy of worship. Don't worship me. I'm just one of his servants. But the Apostle John fell on his face and began to be tempted to worship this angelic being. These are mighty, powerful, beautiful beings. Yet here our hymn says, these beings worship this coming child. Look at the fourth verse with me there in the hymn. At his feet, the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence and with cease, as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. There's Alleluia's replaced the Holy, Holy, Holy that we see in Isaiah 6. But these are majestic, mysterious, heavenly beings, and forever and ever they worship the one God. Here we have not mere humans praising this child, not sinners. It's not Mary and Joseph in worship. It's not shepherds or magi. Here we have angelic beings covering their faces and worshiping without end this being, this one who was to come and dwell in our midst, one born of Mary. Here in this hymn, the writer wants to continually remind us of something. All of the pieces that we've seen so far are pointing to one unmistakable fact. Think about it. This child is coming to make demands and to rule us. This child is coming to defeat the powers of hell. This child is worshipped by heavenly beings, cherubim and seraphim. What child is this? What is the writer saying to us over and over again in this hymn? The writer is telling us that this child is God. This child is the Holy One, the Exalted One, the Alpha and the Omega. In every single verse, the writer reminds us of these things. In verse 1, He is our God to earth descending. You see it there. In verse 2, He is King of kings, yet born of Mary. He is Lord of lords in human vesture. In verse 3, He is light of light descending. 
In verse 4, he is worshipped by the angels. This is no ordinary babe. This is my final point. This hymn wants to provoke us to fear and trembling by reminding us that this child is God Almighty. When Isaiah saw this God in that same vision out of Isaiah 6, what was his response? Fear and trembling. Woe is me, he said. I am ruined. This is the God that Moses wanted to see, but he said, no. You cannot see my face in my pure, raw glory and live. When Ezekiel saw the vision of God by the Chabar Canal, which we studied some months ago in Babylon, he fell to the ground and couldn't move. The Spirit had to lift him up. He was utterly undone. When John the Apostle saw God in his vision, Revelation 1, he fell down as though a dead man, it says in Scriptures. This is the Creator God, the one through whom all things were made, the one who spoke the world into existence with mere words. And Colossians 1 picks up on this. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God. The one through whom all things were made. This is the same God that has come to us at Christmas. He is the word become flesh that now dwells among us. Stand, sit in silence and awe. Let all the earth Keep silence before him. And let's do that for just a moment. Take a few seconds. Let's just be still and silent as we ponder this. Perhaps most awesome of all is the fact that this God would not only defy the imagination and come down as a man, born of a woman, but he would come to offer, in the words of this hymn, his own body and blood and offer himself as food for all of his people. What this means is that Christ would become our very life, our spiritual food and nourishment. And he would do that by being broken for us. Just as we might break bread at the meal table, Christ was broken for you and for me. To pay a debt that you and I could never pay. In the words of a hymn we sang earlier, nails, spear shall pierce them through, the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the Word made flesh, the babe, the Son of Mary. This babe was God, and He came to be pierced for me and for you, 
and everyone who believes in him will receive the gift of everlasting life. That's his promise. That's his promise. And now as we conclude, having pondered all these things together, I want to say here at the end that I think for most of us, especially those of us who are Americans, it's probably the vast majority of us here, I think that all of the responses to the coming of the Christ child, of all the things we've talked about, and we've still got another week to talk about these things, this one is probably the most neglected, this kind of response to the coming of, of the Christ child. We respond with longing, right? We confess our longing for the world to be made right, for him to come again. We get that. We experience the brokenness, the pain. We want to be made whole. We respond with joy, right? Christmas, generally speaking, I know many experience great sorrow at Christmas for different reasons, but there's joy often for many of us at Christmas. But we generally do not respond with fear and trembling, do we? That's a, not a natural, quick response. We're not often responding with awe and silence. And I think, speaking for myself, I was, you know, I've known this for a long time, once again reminded that I am, we are, perhaps oftentimes too chatty, too busy, too active, too celebratory, too festive, too driven, too ambitious, too distracted, right? Sometimes we need to slow down and make room for silence, make room for awe and wonder to be cultivated in our lives, right? One simple suggestion for how to do that. Remove some of the distractions. I know that's not easy. It takes work. Remove some of the distractions. Just make some space in your daily life for quiet. And don't even fill it up with prayer. This is my problem. I'll have some room and I'll think, oh, I should be praying. Right? And I'll run to prayer. Or I'll start lifting prayers. And, and, and next thing I know, I'm just busy and worked up in my head again about all the different things. But don't even feel like you need to do something in the quiet. Just sit there. Just be there. Take a walk. Be quiet. John Bunyan once said these words, In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Right? It's okay sometimes just to sit and be silent. And have nothing to say. That's okay. And I would say, if you are never without words before God, I think that's a problem. If you're always chatty with God, always quick to speak, we don't know the one before whom we're standing. Sometimes we should be gripped with fear and trembling. We see this in the Bible. It's in the Scriptures. So I want to challenge us as we approach Christmas to make some space for this kind of response to the coming of Jesus into the world. Let all mortal flesh keep silent and with fear and trembling stand or sit. May this Christmas include some of these things this year for us. Amen.